0: Today is November 8th, 2018, and my guest is political scientist Peter Berkowitz, the TAD and Diane Tauby Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He has written widely on constitutional government, the state of the American university, and the Israeli political landscape. Peter, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: It's good to be with you. Thank you.
0: Our topic for today is liberalism writ large. Uh, I will draw partly on a five-part Series you recently did that we will link to on Patrick Deneen's book Why Liberalism Failed. Uh, I want to start by your attempt. I, it's a bold. It's a bold question to define liberalism. Uh, not an easy thing to do. So when you talk about liberalism, what does it mean to you?
1: Yes, uh, not an easy thing to do. Well, first we should uh, distinguish. I, I I don't mean not because it's not an interesting question, but I don't mean. Um, liberalism, as the term is, is typically used in contemporary parlance. That is the left wing of the Democratic Party, uh, the progressive point of view, the school of uh, political thought that, uh, uh, that argues that um, we should aggressively use government to regulate the economy and redistribute wealth. I don't mean that, although actually those thoughts are within the tradition that I do refer to as liberalism. When I use the term, or uh, I should put it this way, I want to think more about uh, the modern tradition of freedom. And since that's a sometimes cumbersome formulation, for short, I say liberalism. And I have in mind a tradition that comes into being, that crystallizes really, say, toward the end of the 17th century in England, a seminal work is uh, John Locke's Two Treatises on Government. Uh, This is the tradition that, uh, to a very significant extent, informs the uh, founding of the United States, our Constitution. Its uh, fundamental moral premise is that all human beings are by nature free and equal, of, it says that the task of government is to secure individual rights shared equally by all. It rests government on the consent of the governed. Um, it believes that uh, government should be limited. It depends upon free markets and a vibrant civil society and so on. That's the tradition that I have in mind when, uh, when I fer- refer to the liberal tradition.
0: Talk about how John Locke matters uh, in general. For that, you, you happen to arbitrarily, of course, pick <laughs> pick Locke as a yes. turning point of some kind. Why? Why is he important for the evolution of the institutions that we call liberal institutions in the West? And who else would you give credit to, or who else is important in that evolution?
1: Sure. Well, there's there's a lot of credit to be given. But Locke marks a, a kind of seminal moment. Uh, John Locke is not the first thinker in the Western tradition to write about uh, limited government or the separation of powers or, or even consent. But he's uh, among the very first and provides a classical statement of the idea that uh, that these... These political institutions and political ideas have to be traced back to grounded in the idea that all human beings are by nature free and equal. And this is, um, this is a relatively new idea. Not that uh, the idea that human beings are by nature free and equal does, doesn't have roots in the Western tradition in, in both classical Greece and our biblical tradition. But the Bible doesn't base equality on, on natural rights, on, on natural freedom and equality, bases equality on, um, on our uh, all being created in God's image. And Greek political thought doesn't begin from the idea that all human beings are by nature free and equal. Greek political thought tends to revolve around questions of virtue and human, le- human excellence and, draw more, and draws moral stink- distinctions uh, among human beings based on the virtues and thinks about how to organize political society in relationship to, to virtue. Locke, uh, again, he may not begin... He certainly doesn't begin, but he gives seminal expression to a new way of thinking about politics. A way of thinking about politics that says most important uh, fact about human beings, I use the word fact here from Locke's point of view, is that we are by nature free and equal, and a legitimate political society must respect this freedom and this, freedom and this uh, equality. Locke works that out, uh, and much of political thought, not all, but much of political thought in the English-speaking tradition. Following Locke uh, involves efforts to uh, think through the variety of moral and political implications of this beginning thought, that human beings are by nature free and equal.
0: Why would he possibly, how could he possibly start there, given that he was writing in, in the 17th century, I think? Yeah, uh, when most people, from all um, intents and pur- for all intents and purposes, were neither free nor equal, w- what did he have in mind when he when he would make a claim like that? How, given that a lot of people were literally enslaved, others were uh, in various kinds of, of bondage or lack of lack of liberty, and certainly very most people, there was a lot of inequality. What what was he thinking? Yes. What did he mean by that? Uh, and, and Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yes, uh, good questions. Well, um, I've been emphasizing, as does Locke, uh, the formulation, by nature free and equal. In reality, uh, human beings were not treated as free and equal. Um, slavery, other forms of bondage, uh, inequalities, even savage inequalities in society. Indeed, at the time, uh, Britain... And Europe, both were governed by divine right monarchs. Divine right monarchy seemed to suggest that there was a fundamental difference between kings and queens and other human beings. Kings and queens had a right that other human beings lacked. So Locke was writing at this time, 17th century, amid wars of religion. After officially in 1648, uh, the great wars of religion ended, but continued religious strife, uh, including uh, in Britain. And he was writing in a time in which the idea that uh, kings ruled by divine right was becoming increasingly incredible. To more and more incredible in the in the technical sense of difficult, uh, more and more difficult to believe. And Locke begins the uh, his second treatise, raising the question: um, If we can no longer accept that political power is based upon the claims of divine right, and this is what he believes believed himself to have successfully shown in the first treatise of government. Then we face a challenge because we would prefer to avoid concluding that the exercise of all power is illegitimate or based upon force and violence, the stronger imposing upon the weaker. So he asks himself, is there an alternative foundation to divine right uh, for political power? His answer was yes and his answer was that a legitimate political power is rooted in uh, the natural freedom and equality of all, or let's be more precise, in the decisions by individuals who are by nature free and equal to recognize the political power exercised over them uh, as legitimate. Now, you ask a very good question. Why should anybody think this assumption plausible in the 17th century? And uh, I think one... A uh, very important part of the answer is the biblical tradition, because the biblical tradition and and John Locke is uh, very much writing within. Uh, I use the phrase of a British scholar now, John Donne, within a uh, Puritan pattern of moral sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, the the dominant uh, idea, I should say, a leading idea, taught by. Uh, taught by uh, Protestantism, was the basic equality of human beings. Um, this, was a, this was a teaching that you would have um, begun to learn when you were very young. Now, again, um, one, obj- one objection one constantly hears is that, uh, yes, but political reality differed from, uh, from what children were taught and even what might be professed in church. It certainly did. Political reality almost also, almost diverges from the ideal, and a great deal of uh, politics involves bringing a recalcitrant political reality a bit more in line with what we think to be um, proper and just.
0: So at that time, uh, I, I think of it as a stirring, a, a feeling that something isn't Quite right, and that follow. What follows from that is a set of uh, revolutions, um, upheavals, both in physical sense and in the intellectual sense, that ends up destroying the defensibility of that monarchy, uh, divine right of kings, uh, seemingly forever, um, and uh, launches what. We would normally is part of not only, but is part of what we would normally call the Enlightenment. Would that be a correct summary?
1: Yes, I think that gets you from uh, from Locke toward the end of the 17th century toward the flowering of the Enlightenment uh, in the 18th century. I mean, well, one might add that there are um, there are additional d- uh, developments: the rise of modern science. Um, The the rise of British maritime cultures, ships are sent to all over the world, and not only the British but uh, other Europeans, discovering the variety and diversity of of humanity as the uh, economy becomes more involved and uh, intricate – uh, more opportunities are created for uh, more human beings, more human beings uh, become open to the idea of of the idea of uh, of human equality. so a variety of developments are are at work, all pushing us in the direction of recognizing that uh, human beings are by nature free and equal and making more demands for a form of political, economic, and moral life that reflects this essential equality in freedom.
0: And one more um, definitional point. When Locke said that, that human beings are free, what, what do you think he meant by that? Ah, uh,
1: thank you. It's a very important question and I should have uh, already provided an answer to it. Um, he meant freedom in a precise sense. In other words, you can think of various ways of being free. If i um if I'm hiking, and uh, I, I stumble and find myself pinned down by a rock, um, I can't move, I'm trapped in that in that situation. I'm not free to get up and move about, or if I have an aspiration to fly to the clouds. If I don't have an airplane, you could say, well, uh, I'm limited, I'm not truly free. In some sense, these are legitimate uses of the word freedom. But John Locke is very clear. He's not referring to freedom in that sense. The kind of freedom that we have by nature is not being legitimately subject to the will of another person or or other groups of human beings. Think about it this way. Locke is telling us that that we can discern through reason that no human being is born with a title to rule over another and no human being is born to serve another. We're not born with a duty to serve. We're not born with titles uh, to rule. That's freedom. Now, I said it's a narrow sense, but it's a profound sense, and it's, uh, uh, it's rich with political significance, but it doesn't refer to... Absolute freedom, complete freedom, as uh as critics of the liberal tradition come to come to say uh it does.
0: So if I'm thinking of doing something and I'm worried I'm gonna be judged for it, and yes. so those social norms uh constrain my choice. They don't constrain. that's not the right word. Yes. Um, I don't know what the right word is there, but affect. No. it will just say yes. that. Affect my choices um just to take a, a very modest example, I'm I'm going to a, a funeral, and I yes. decide not to go in my gym clothes. Uh, yes. I decide to put on a a, a suit. I, I'm free to put on – I'm free to go in my gym clothes. Yes. I choose not to because I think it's, quote, inappropriate. Yes. Um, that social norm, I assume Locke would not, would not call a restriction of my freedom. Well, yes. Yeah, so we
1: should be careful here. In, uh it is, in a sense, a restriction of your freedom. Sure. The um, guilt trips that our parents impose upon us or we as children impose upon our parents, yep. those are constraints on people's freedom for sure. But here's the important distinction. That was not the form of freedom that John Locke believed. It was the government's job to protect. In other words, people uh, cri- uh, Postmodern critics, for example, will talk about uh, enslavement to social norms. Exactly, We, we should not deny um, that uh, social norms can uh, rein us in, pin us down, shackle us. Already in uh, the middle of the 19th century, uh, John Locke and, uh, and Tocqueville a little bit earlier are making this point about the power of public opinion and social norms um, to, to limit us. We need to acknowledge it. It's true, but Locke, Locke's teaching is that kind of unfreedom, and the kind of unfreedom you experience in your inability to fly to the clouds and beyond, is not the kind of freedom the state is designed to uh, protect or achieve, to ha- to enable you to achieve. The form of protection that the the, the state grants is to prevent you from being subject to the, the will of another. And here I suppose I need to clarify. Um, will, not in the sense of uh, expressing an opinion or making a judgment that you dislike or deplore. Will, in the sense of forcing you, the threat of, in the face of uh, violence, or with the threat of violence, to act or to refrain from acting.
0: It's a very important distinction, and, and I think... Um, I mean, you can use words any way you like as long as – well, up to a point, as long as you make it clear what you mean by them. And I think that's a that particular distinction you just made is extremely important. And I guess it's, it's the reason I call myself often a classical liberal, meaning yes. liberal in the older sense of the word. And by that, I'm talking about what I think is the correct role of the state. And when I talk about that correct role, I will often say I want a – A minimal state with personal responsibility, and by minimal I mean, I I have no problem. I'm not an anarchist. I have no problem with government providing uh, certain legal restrictions and regulations, courts, police, and so on. And that's everything else is free to happen uh, through in emergent ways that just not through the power of the legislature or a sovereign. And so yes, it's okay that there are many things we don't like about life. I often use drugs as an example. I don't take drugs uh, of the recreational kind, but I think we should be free to make that choice for ourselves. And I have no problem with the role that religion or family or culture would play in restricting drug use through shame, education, inspiration, uh, educa- uh, you know, and various other ways. Uh, I just don't want the government forcing not allowing people to have that those choices for themselves, uh,
1: right? And I, I, I have a great deal of sympathy myself for that way of uh, viewing the matter. In addition, that way of viewing the matter can help us understand um, enduring distinctions between right and left within this liberal tradition. Uh, or use another term um, I should have mentioned earlier. I'm glad you've mentioned now classical liberalism for this uh, the the early moments. And the mature moments of the modern tradition of freedom, you you spoke of um, not being against the state, but for a, a minimal state, and in fact, um, in practice, many men and women on the left recognize some limitations on the on the state. But you can determine where a person falls within the this broader tradition, modern tradition of freedom, by. Uh, how much power they are willing to give the state for the purpose of securing freedom and equality. So t- today's conservatives tend to uh, wish to see the state uh, significantly limited, Uh they want a broad, private sphere. They want the individual to be able to make lots of choices, not because we're uh, always confident that the individuals will choose best or most wisely, but uh, because we're very skeptical that uh, on balance and over the long haul, other people, government, can choose better for uh, for individuals. But if you look at those people who uh, want more regulation, including more redistribution. It is very interesting that almost always their arguments are couched in terms of freedom and equality. V- very few people say, uh, I want more regulation in order to achieve greater aristocracy, uh, or I want it to uh, increase the power of uh, my small clique or uh, our Or, corner of the elite. Almost always, the arguments are in favor, are uh, justified by an appeal to what's necessary to do in order to uh, achieve true and genuine freedom or meaningful equality.
0: If I can, I want to digress for a second. So, uh, I find myself often arguing against those interventionist claims uh, by saying something like, I worry about the concentration of power in the hands of uh, elected officials because, as you said, I don't believe that they're going to do a particularly good job. And yet at the same time, I respect the intentions of the interventionists who, who want to liberate people from what they see as oppressive conditions or oppressive economic straits. And so I think I, – I find myself in I think what is a difficult um, position to defend – which is that ultimately a lot of my opposition to various government programs or um, interventions is a fear of tyranny that is not apparent in the current setting, but I worry would be uh, if if things continued in the, in the way that they're going. And I don't know if that's a legitimate concern. I do know it doesn't sell very well. <laughs> Most people don't find it as compelling as I do, and I have to then at least examine my own views as to why – I find it compelling. Is it because of my so-called knowledge, my self-congratulatory uh, view that I know a lot about history, perhaps, or uh, aware of how unbridled power has turned out when when it when it operates? And I guess I, when I look at the the other defense, I would offer to my view is that when I look at the long trend. In America, away from the constitutional restraints of the past and toward a a more more of a democracy and less of a republic, uh, I get deeply alarmed. And is there something? I suspect you share some of that concern, but it's interesting how few people find it compelling.
1: Uh, Yes, I I share a great deal of that concern, but I do quarrel with this when you say how few people find it compelling. Um, Actually. Quite a number of people in the United States of America find it compelling. But there are regions in the country um, and classes of people, specific classes of people, who do not find this uh, line of argument compelling. And those people tend to be very heavily concentrated at our universities.
0: They're they're some of the brightest and most educated for what it's worth.
1: They are some of the brightest and most educated, and that's worth uh, a lot but they also form a, a specific political class with distinct interests. Um, these people think um, uh, the many of these people think that they're not only uh, very bright and very gifted. Many of these people think that um, th- they know how to govern and that they know what's best for for everybody else. And they grow, in my experience, grow in. Patient and resentful with people who don't recognize this, um, and they have both a, a, a strong desire to rule, uh, great confidence, and great confidence in uh, in their their abilities, and in having those two qualities, it seems to me, um, they they warrant the kinds of suspicions. That you entertain and I do as well, about what happens with great concentrations of power, even if the original impulse is a is a noble impulse, but but also, um, th- these people tend to equate um, both their interests and their perspective with the universal perspective and universal interests, and that's just not so historically or culturally these people tend Explain, to be
0: what do you mean by that it, what's not so
1: well uh, for example um, the overwhelming majority of um, professors at our elite universities are secular men and women the overwhelming majority are um, uh, are men and women of the left um, it is not true of the United States of America, first of all, that the overwhelming majority are, uh, are of the left and we have a sizable re- religious population in this country. M- Moreover, this is not just a matter of uh, representation. Uh, that now we touch on an area in which enlightenment thought can be taken to an extreme. There are many people, uh, uh, many among our intellectuals, who believe that the secular point of view – uh, is not only a, a legitimate, a respectable point of view, a powerful point of view. They believe that it's the last word on reality, and that seems to me
0: as to many re- religious people do as well. On the other uh, side, oh,
1: yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yes, fair enough. And uh, and I'm actually. Um, uh, Equally averse to giving either group absolute power. I <laughs> quite, 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 correct. But in our political society, in the United States of America, um, in the United States of America today, um, this is—it is, uh, is the—it uh, uh, is the secular class that is largely in control of our educational institutions. Not the religious class. Now, this is a rather new circumstance in the history of humanity. Up until the Enlightenment, um, well, up until the Enlightenment, there was not, there was barely a distinction between the religious and the secular. All were, in one way or another, lived. Almost all lived within a uh, uh, a religious framework. So, so yes, uh, re- religious people. Uh, you might say all people. Uh, tend to um, equate their understanding of the world with the final understanding of the world. But for just that reason, Russ, it seems to me you are well justified in your skepticism about handing over uh, lots of power to determine not only decisions about um, labor consumption and production, but decisions about what can be said, what may not be said, what may be heard, what may not be heard, who but, or what to worship or not to.
0: But but so many of the issues that I think are on the table, on the political table, are, are outside most of these concerns. And I, let, me, let me make it, let me give it. Let's talk about the hard case. Okay, you, know, you and I are very. I think I know we're on the same page with respect to freedom of speech and what can be said and not said. And we both are upset. I know that at the current state of 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 many university settings where certain things are literally not allowed to be said and a, at a place where we would once believed that everything should be said so that the power of uh, education can be wielded as fully as possible. But I want to put that to the side. Let's take a harder case. Let's talk about uh, various redistribution measures that, that the left and the right disagree on or that interventionists and that liberals and conservatives interventionists versus non-interventionists disagree on. And in particular, you think about things like uh, the minimum wage, the earned income yes. tax credit, uh, progressive taxation, uh, the current levels of inequality, which listeners know I think are greatly exaggerated. But even if they're greatly exaggerated, the, the actual levels are still large by many historical standards and certainly large – I shouldn't say all historical standards, by some historical mm-hmm. measures. Um, and, and so – when we think about this, as in the framework of what you're talking about, the the Lockean, yes. free and equal, and the uh, the political issues that of the day, uh, you know, almost no one is willing to defend uh, the the abstract level of of income distribution that would happen in a in a free market society yes. without. Uh, the safety net, without social welfare yes. spending, without interventions in the economy like uh, the yes. minimum wage. And I don't think, when I think about the people who, are, and I tend to be one of the few who who's defensive of those, I'm willing, I would rather see uh, civil society and philanthropy and charity be the means by which Social um, differences are are affected rather than through the power of the legislature in the state. I'm on a very lonely, uh, on a very lonely island there with a very small group of uh, friends, and and when I think about the people who are on the other side, most of them are extremely well intentioned. They're not the the elites at the universities that you're yes. criticizing, uh, and and. Uh, yes. And giving a hard time about – with for their <laughs> self-righteous, uh, yes. et cetera. They're just well-intentioned people who don't like the way the world is, and yes. they operate on a case-by-case basis. They're not ideologues like I tend to be. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I try to be a more humble ideologue than I was when I was younger, <laughs> but I'm still an ideologue, and I'm aware of it, which is a plus. But I, the people on the other side just say, well, like, come on. you know, there's There's so much extra wealth laying around. You don't need it whoever you is, and uh, let's let's move some of it around. And and I think most of the people who are in favor of that don't want to be running the world, and they don't want to see themselves as as the uh, philosopher kings. They just think this would make the world a better place. So what's your response to that?
1: Um, My response is that uh, there has always been within, you could call it classical liberalism or the modern tradition of freedom, room for... uh, some state intervention in uh, the economy, and even some redistribution. But it has to be limited, and it, it's limited by um, considerations of freedom and right. W- what do I mean? There's, um, there's a wonderful uh, a brief discussion in Chapter 6 of Locke's Second Treatise, which deals with education, uh, concerning parents' obligations. Parents have an obligation to, uh, argues Locke, to educate their children. But there's also a puzzle there. If all human beings are by nature free and equal, um, by what authority do parents impose their will, educate? Because education is a kind of imposition, a discipline on their children. Locke's answer is it's simple a very and elegant. Tough question. It's a very <laughs> tough question. Well, it's interesting as a theoretical matter. Um, it's easy to state what his solution is. As a practical, empirical policy matter, it's at the heart of all our disputes. Locke's answer is this: Parents may exercise their authority um, and, dis- and must discharge their duty in order to prepare their children for a life of freedom as adults. Very interesting. So a lot of discipline, a lot of training, a lot of headache and heartache. Um, But it's all just directed at and justified by the principle of freedom. The question arises, Locke raises the question, what happens if a child is orphaned? His answer, the state should step in, government should step in and provide the education that it was the obligation of his father, actually says, of his parents to provide. The state, you see, has an interest in ensuring that every citizen is, uh, is at least minimally capable of fending for himself or herself. That means literate. That means capable of holding a job. That means capable at some basic level of, of participating in the governance of the country. So even from the beginning in the most austere statement we have of, uh, of the uh, classical liberal framework of government, we have a justification for state intervention. And one can, uh, one can think in those terms about all the forms of intervention that you mentioned. Let's start with uh, uh, social safety net. Although uh, now as then... Education is one of the most controversial areas, but the social safety net. Uh, many people argue, uh, including uh, the great classical liberal uh, Friedrich Hayek, um, that uh, it's entirely proper for an advanced industrial, post-industrial liberal democracy to make a ba- to maintain a basic uh, social safety net that is to prevent. Um, to try to prevent any citizens from falling below a basic minimum level of material, material well-being. It's bad for the country. It's bad for the economy. It's bad for the uh, spirit of fellow citizens if people are starving in the streets. So there's no... uh, uh, this, this may be painful to certain uh, kinds of libertarian ears, but within the classical liberal tradition, uh, insofar as Locke is a, uh, is a member in good standing of that tradition, and I think he is, uh, there's a very strong argument for a degree. But I want to go back to um, a language you used earlier about uh, minimal state. The, the liberal perspective also immediately adds – We want to, we recognize that there are cases for state intervention to maintain certain minimums, even moral minimums, but we'd like that intervention to be as limited as possible because we remain alert to the dangers of government, to the temptations of overreach, To, to the uh, to to use the language of the Federalist Papers of the encroaching nature of power. We want to avoid situations in which the remedy is worse than the disease. So we we could repeat this, of course, of uh, uh, through the course of a discussion of all the great social issues of the day. One would find whether we're talking about a social safety net. Uh, um, tax rates, uh, abortion, affirmative action, same-sex marriage, transgender rights, um, a a whole range of questions that one can make arguments in the name of freedom and equality on both sides of the question. Um, With uh, progressives or the left side of the spectrum more interested, focused on progress improvement making adjustments by means of the most powerful agency in society that's government to improve the ability of more Americans to enjoy their rights and to uh, to create a society that more more accurately reflects the equality we all share, share the progressive argument with conservatives constantly warning that giving the government the power to do X, Y, or Z brings about threats to freedom, and therefore equality, that, are wor- that will be worse than um, uh, the situation without those progressive reforms. In other words, this is the enduring structure of the debate, and I'll only add this for now, that's as it should be. That is the debate that since um, Edmund Burke criticized the French revolutionaries, has constituted the modern tradition of freedom.
0: So I want to take an example. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how this fits into that, and that was very well said. But I, when I think about redistribution, I think I think the wrong argument, which is the one that's usually made, and I think it's wrong, is um, high taxes, high tax rates. Used to redistribute income is ineffic- mm-hmm. is inefficient. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the economists' um, complaint <laughs> about redistribution. It's it's going to lower the growth rate. Right. And I find that remarkably unappealing as <clears> an <throat> argument. Um, I'm not sure it's true. It's true in some sense. I'm very confident that it's true in some sense. It's the magnitudes though are are often that are found at least by people. Who look at them? They of course have an axe to grind, inevitably, but, but they do find v- relatively small effects. Hmm. And when people say to me, uh, "So therefore, uh, it's better to let um, it's better to have higher tax rates to and redistribute the money, or to have higher, just to have a larger government." Period, because the the costs are small because there's not going to be this big adjustment in, in labor supply, in quantity of labor supplied. My my thought always is uh, I have no problem with, with government taxing uh, at relatively high rates if I thought they would spend the money well. I'm much more confident that the individuals will spend the money well. Yes, much of it will be on themselves, uh, but much of it might be given away. Much of it might be given to foundations and charities that would do good things, and I don't see a lot of evidence that the government – through the political process, spends it well, and w- at which point my opponents will often say, well, we just need to fix that. And I, my <laughs> response is it's really hard to fix, evidently, because we're not good at fixing it. And I also recognize, by the way, that there may be other societies that that do it much better than we do, that that allocate money and spend it more wisely and more carefully, that American government spending doesn't seem to be so effective. And I'll just mention an example. We're, we're having this conversation two days after the midterm elections, and a lot of people were deeply offended, uh, and correctly so, that in many poor neighborhoods, uh, voting machines were broken, uh, didn't work correctly. People were were forced to stand in line for a long time, and some people saw this as something of a conspiracy. Uh, it may be, but I did make the observation that many things the government does in poor neighborhoods aren't done well. They, We don't get good police service in poor neighborhoods. We don't get good public schools. I know it's complicated. It's not just the government provision that we're evaluating there. But it's not surprising to me that in the public process, uh, it allocates things more happily to politically powerful people rather than to people who have very little political power. And poor people only get the power of voting. And they don't have the power of donation and other ways that people influence the political process. So they get the short end of the stick, which is precisely why I prefer often non-governmental solutions. Of course, they also – Poor people don't do so well at that, but that's often just at a point in time. At a point in time, yes, rich people have more stuff than poor people. Over time, things that were considered the purview of the rich are suddenly available to the poor. So poor people have cell phones, they have color TVs, they have cars. The things that when they first came out only were enjoyed by rich people. There's a democratization in, in, in capitalism that's quite powerful. I'm not going to say that material well-being is the only thing that matters. I don't say it at all, in fact, but but my To come full circle, I started off making the observation that you know I oppose high tax rates not because of market inefficiencies or slowing the rates of growth because I don't think the government allocates that money well. And I think that argument, again, it's not much of a winner, but that's the reason – that's the right way I think about those things. And um,
1: anyway. Uh, Well, um, I think it's a good argument, and you can uh – uh, you can make arguments by like that by by the way in in other spheres. Um, you know if if government truly knew the correct religion the, the truths about religion, why wouldn't we want government to uh, direct us to the truths about um, God, the good life on earth, salvation? But we have a reasonable skepticism. About the ability of government to, let's say, allocate wisdom about religion, and that evidence comes from virtually all of human history. To say nothing of, uh, to say nothing of the the contemporary, the contemporary arena. Um, this, by the way, is not to praise um, each every individual. It's to say that um, that uh, a lot. Mischief and destruction seems to uh, accompany government being given the power to decide uh, what the true religious beliefs are. Well, that also, sorry, go ahead. The, sorry, go, yeah, I was going to say something similar about um, speech, other kinds of opinions. And it seems to me you're making a similar argument about um, about good services and and wealth there's n- there's not good reason to suppose that government is uh, or government that 's too abstract that the men and women who run for office and the men and women who are appointed by the men and women who win office are uh, singularly well skilled at making these uh, these complex decisions now some such decisions have to be made, but we worry about two things we one we worry about um, about the quantity and quality of wisdom necessary to figure out the right distributions, and then we worry about the, um, the quality of, um, of moral integrity to avoid uh, the temptations and corruptions of, of power. It seems to me these are uh, good arguments, although I recognize that in many circles these days they are not winning arguments. But I but I don't confuse uh, arguments that win from arguments that are the best.
0: Yeah, well, for those of us who believe in the market process, it's a little bit <laughs> difficult because the ones that win, one might be tempted to argue the best. But And among my friends, I, I, I think we'd have to admit that the place we think markets fail the most is in the market for ideas, or we'd have to, but we don't like to talk about that. Um, but. <laughs> That's a long conversation for another time. I I want to talk about the Enlightenment more generally. Before we do, though, uh, I want to reference uh, two recent talk episodes, uh, one with Patrick Deneen on his book Why Liberalism Failed and one with Yoram Hazzoni on The Virtue of of Nationalism. And I know you have read both books, and I know you've written about both books. Uh, And in our private conversations, you've suggested to me that both of them – Get Locke wrong. Uh, how do they misunderstand or misconstrue Locke, uh, and why does it matter? Uh,
1: interestingly, uh, both authors, um, whose books I should say I, I, I believe make important contributions to uh, um, to questions of, of the first importance today about liberal democracy. Both books, however, treat uh, John Locke as the kind of um, great uh, great demon or great villain of uh, of the modern world. They, they treat him, I think this is Deneen's language, as the uh, first philosopher of liberalism. And they both, both uh, Yoram Hazony and Patrick Deneen, regard uh, uh this tradition that we've been talking about as representing a disastrous, a disastrous wrong turn yep. for humanity. Uh, both believe that. Both believe that it is necessary for us to uh, understand how John Locke has led us astray and overcome Locke's grip on our thinking and on our political institutions in order to achieve what happiness we can from, uh, from political life and life in this world. Okay, so that's that's a perspective both share. Uh, what do they say about Locke? Um, both say something like this, although I'm uh, I'm uh, may not be uh, entirely fair to either as I try to um, create a a common Locke. But I, th- I think I'm pretty close. Uh, what I'm about to say is pretty close to um, a conception of Locke that both share. Both believe that. Uh, John Locke's liberalism is devoted to emancipating, uh, emancipating human desire and liberating human beings from all constraint. That's a, that's a near paraphrase of, uh, of some of Patrick Deneen's writings.
0: Including, and other, tra- including tradition and, oh. and other inherited um, inherited things, intellectual inheritances.
1: Oh, actually, um, most specifically tradition, custom, religious faith. uh, Yes, all that both Deneen and Chazoni think is is central to making human beings what we are and to enabling us to live a, a fulfilling life. Locke is devoted to emancipating us from tradition, custom, faith, overthrowing it impelling us to turn our backs on it and make ourselves the center of the world. So uh, Locke is the father of uh, contemporary solipsism, narcissism, and individualism, rampant individualism.
0: And hedonism as well, right? Oh, did I leave
1: that out? Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. Yes, most definitely hedonism as well. That's the emancipation of desire. Whatever you happen to desire, that deserves
0: to be satisfied. And to make it clear, that's their view of what Locke's saying, but you Th- disagree. That's uh, not what Locke's saying. Uh, your your argument is: your argument is that they've created a straw man.
1: That that is very much my argument. Um, uh, Locke's, as as I said, Locke, Locke begins from a premise that it is meant to be both um, uh, descriptive and factual. That human beings are by nature free and equal, which. By the way, I suppose it's worth uh, pointing out is also the premise of the Declaration the, the, Ameri- the American Declaration of, of Independence and of the Constitution that human beings are by, by nature free and equal, and this, um, this imposes, from Locke's point of view, definite limits on uh, what we, what we may do and the kinds of desires we uh, may rightly satisfy. Um, uh, second. Both Deneen and uh, and Hazoni think that uh, through his state of nature teaching, his teaching about the state of nature, uh, John Locke is putting forward a vision of human beings that is uh, radically atomized or individualistic. That human beings come into the world as individuals. They are most happy outside of political society. But need compels them to form political societies. But we're not really social and political animals. This is... um if that were true, it would indeed be a repudiation of the classical teaching, the classical Greek teaching. Aristotle famously says that human beings are uh, social and political animals because we speak and language is shared and because we have opinions about the noble and the base and the just and uh, and the unjust. And Dineen also argues, as does uh, Hazoni, also that... Uh, the Bible teaches that human beings are fundamentally um, social beings who uh, are formed and achieve their happiness in family, community, faith communities. So from their point of view, Locke is um, is the antithesis of, is the enemy of um, uh, the correct understanding of what human beings truly are, social and political animals. And again, I think this represents a... Uh, drastically wrong-headed reading of, uh, of John Locke. And, and for that matter, I should add, uh, of the Bible, um, t- t- take, for example, um, uh, the first book of Genesis. Actually, contrary to what both Deneen and Hazoni suggest, the Bible doesn't begin with human beings in political society. The Bible begins with human beings in, forgive the expression, uh, a radically abstract sense. G- God creates man, B'Tzalim Elohim, in his image. And then to make clear that what we're talking about is um, equality, I think this is uh, verse 26 or 27 of the first book of Genesis. Uh, um, the Bible says, utam, uh, male and female, he created them. The first time we encounter human beings in the Bible, they are more, uh, uh, more radically abstract than anything we encounter in John Locke's second treatise in, uh, in the state of nature. Now... Uh, A reasonable person would not say that the Bible, therefore, doesn't understand human beings as also social creatures who are formed in and derive their what what happiness we're capable in this world from being friends, members of families, members of communities, and and so on. Uh, I suppose I'd put it this way. I I will put it this way, that uh, the Bible recognizes that we are uh, both individuals with a dignity that attaches to us as individuals, and that we are uh, at the same time uh, creatures formed by our social relations and even unthinkable separate from the, uh, the families into which we were born, the communities into which we were raised. It seems to me something quite similar can be said about, um, about John Locke's teaching of course, if I'm right about all this, uh, I'm going to now uh, rudely anticipate your next question. Well, why the misreading? Where do they get this idea? Surely, where there's smoke, there's where there's fire. There, where there's smoke, there's some fire. Um, a, and I think that's that's right too. Uh, I think the problem has been in both of their readings, as as you've suggested, what I regard as misreadings, both Hazoni and Dineen have identified um, an extreme variant of modern liberalism with uh, classical liberalism itself. Um, one could call this uh, far-left progressivism. One could even call it post-modernism. And we could discuss, I suppose, how certain um, ambiguities and instabilities in John Locke's thought um, and in in the form of political life it helped bring into being liberal democracy, lead to some of the extreme opinions, including uh, what I regard as an extreme contempt for tradition within liberal democracy and within postmodern or some forms of progressive thought. The, that part of the thesis seems to me true. That is, uh, There is a a root within Locke. But the proper response is uh, is not to uh, vilify John Locke, but to recover the fullness of his way of thinking.
0: Well, I think as a libertarian, um, I think it's... um, My worldview in general has suggested that While I'm a person of tradition myself, personally, in my own individual choices, that others should be free to choose to be traditional if they choose or to do whatever they wish. Um, Each individual should be free to flourish according to the vision of the good life that 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 person sees. And, of course, if a person then uses that freedom to watch TV all day and get drunk, that's their choice. Yes. And and I respect that choice, but I think there is an atomism uh, or – I don't know what the right way to think about it is. It just – that I've been thinking about a lot lately in in modern times in the last few years. It's modern times for me (laughs) Uh, where where I've been forced to confront. Part of it comes from my my reading of the theory of moral sentiments, which Mm -hmm. I I neglected until recently. (laughs) Um, It comes from some – recognition of fragmentation or whatever you want to, alienation in American life, uh, to recognize that my underpinnings of my viewpoint, which I would call, again, economics-oriented, free market-oriented, are very incomplete. That uh, the phrase I keep coming back to is uh, the human longing to belong, this part of ourselves to attach ourselves to traditions, to teams, to tribes – and that economics, which again is, is the root of my interests, has nothing to say about that of any value or significance um, other than the occasional, uh, I don't know, icing on a cake yeah. where we add a little bit of social interactions in the case of Gary Becker's work, which are quite <laughs> clever and, and, and useful at times in understanding things. But just haven't made their way into mainstream economics in any sense. Uh, it's not much of, of Milton Friedman's work. It's not much of Hayek's work. You mentioned Hayek's respect to the safety net. That's like two paragraphs in the road to serfdom. He didn't spend a lot of time on it. Um, I think our desire to be part of something larger than ourselves, whether it's our religion, our sports team, our political party, these are things that I increasingly think are important in, in how people achieve meaning in life. And their outside, totally outside the purview of, of the models and, and frameworks that many people use to justify their political views. And so when I think about this, uh, this issue of, you know, who's the real liberal, who's the real, Mm -hmm. um, who, who's entitled to claim Locke as a intellectual ancestor, you know, I, I'm not so interested in that. Um, If I were one of my intellectual honesty is—I mean, I care about it. I think we should get Locke right, just for out of respect for Locke. Um, but I do think that that our current intellectual debates about left and right and where we should be heading, whether they accurately assess Locke or not, uh, I think Deneen and I think um, Azoni and to some extent John Gray, who I'm going to bring up in a minute also for recent econ talk guest they're onto something that that the sort of cheerful stories we tell ourselves about the enlightenment's progress are a little overly cheerful and we've missed out on some things uh so that that's sort of where that's what that's my thought on it. um
1: so the so those are important thoughts uh however I think it's important to get uh, Locke right, not to settle disputes uh, among scholars, but, in or- but because I think getting Locke right helps us understand our situation better. Um, it seems to me the objection—the objection to uh, economics—is not that econ- economics gives us a partial view of the world. The problem is too many economists for too long claimed that it gave us the complete inadequate picture of the world. Uh, okay, so I, I want to make a similar point about uh, Locke and the liberal state. People read Locke and they say, wow, that's all there is to life? This skimpy framework of government, the state of nature, consent. Life is so much more rich. Locke could not have anything to offer to explain to us because we know that human beings begin in families, that our psychology is formed there, expectations, Locke has very little to say about social norms, all this is true because John Locke had a very precise purpose in the second treatise. The precise purpose was to teach us something about the origins, the extent, and the ends of the exercise of political power. It is we who have ascribed to John Locke Uh, The idea that all one needs to know about human beings in the world is either contained in the pages of the second treatise, which is a bit bizarre given that the second treatise is actually part of a a single book called Two Treatises of Government. It would be bizarre to write two treatises and put everything you know into one of them. Uh, But but second, also then to criticize the form of political life we have, liberal democracy, because – Our contemporary state doesn't uh, minister to uh, – well, it doesn't minister to the human soul. I was going to say to all aspects of life, but specifically to the soul. And people infer from that, you see, liberalism denies the soul or rejects the soul. Correct use of the word
0: there. You mean the the fuller word.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes. So um, Locke helps me – actually better appreciate that this classical liberal tradition uh, did not deny, or at least at its best, did not da- deny what you rightly affirm, that there's more to life than decisions about labor consumption and uh, production, uh, that the soul is uh, is infinitely deep and infinitely varied, and that the study of it and the care for it are tr- are, are tremendous undertakings and tremendous responsibilities. Um, so so for me, the the commitment to a liberal way of thinking about politics, classically liberal way of thinking of politics, is not only not inconsistent with the larger questions you raise about, and by the way, that Patrick Dineen and Yaram Chazoni raised, with this, I uh, on this matter, I'm very much with them. It's not inconsistent with raising those larger questions. Indeed, within the contemporary modern world, it provides the best political framework t- to raise those questions, to honor tradition. Um. Um. To serve God as as you deem best. Now, of course, there are there there are costs and consequences. To be fair to um, uh, to Ram Chazoni and Patrick Deneen and John Gray, there are uh, developments, enlightenment developments subsequent to the excuse me, first great flowering of the enlightenment. Uh, that put pressure on tradition, on established authority, on on religious faith. Um, to make a very long story short, it seems to me though the solution is not to uh, overthrow the Enlightenment, without which we cannot live well, and which is deeply inscribed in the souls of all of us modern men and women. And so it strikes me as unrealistic and unconservative and illiberal, all of those <laughs> evils at once, um, to think we, we can uh, abandon it, simply abandon it. Rather, seems to me the aim is um, to correct it, replenish it, elevate it, um, in light of what we can learn from uh, from classical Greek political thought and the biblical tradition.
0: So, I want you to extend that. I'm going to bring in uh, John Gray a little more formally. Please. Uh, so, John Gray, in his set of books and, and in his recent episode on Econ Talk, we were talking about atheism, but we really were talking about the last 300, so 400 years of intellectual history, in which you and I have been talking about as well. Uh, amazing what we can cover in an hour, Peter. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's no small feat. Um, but you know, thinking about that, there's a really interesting debate, and I, and it actually matters. It's not just about what Locke really meant, or uh, you know, what, what's the real Enlightenment. But basically, you know, there's a real, there's a serious argument about whether uh, the Enlightenment enterprise, which I would combine, I would say, is the respect for the individual, the power of reason. And uh, political freedom, that is yes. democracy in some version, that those three things combined to transform the world in all kinds of mostly glorious ways for the last yes. three or four hundred years, uh, two, three hundred years. And John Gray says, no, 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 it's mm-hmm. no – we haven't made any progress. Um, and although I don't agree with him, he did force me to consider that I have a dogmatic view of progress, that it's inevitable. Oh, really? Yes, and it was very powerful. And certainly, you know, as a religious person, to have to read his indictments of 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 religion, he he makes fun of a lot of atheists. But he does; he's not a religious person. He's an atheist. So there's there's good atheisms and there's bad ones, and he sees the worst atheisms as uh, you know, Judeo-Christian tradition reworked into into uh, a different form of secular religion and it's a it's very clever and, and thought-provoking and to some extent I think possibly even true but but my I'm way off the track but my to get back on track this enlightenment um, experiment this enlightenment period that we are perhaps coming to the end of um, has been transformative certainly in material ways um, we could debate whether that's all it's done and whether that's come at a price of quote our souls whatever whatever one means by that but but I do think you have to take seriously the possibility that, that there's some truth to that so you have Steven Pinker on one side saying everything's getting better lifespan material well-being the eradication of poverty uh, the eradication of disease the improvements in in human achievements of all kinds I saw glorious you know, two minute video today of someone with Parkinson's uh, taking some kind of treatment that stops. Before this treatment, they can't they can't pick up a cup and hold it to their mouth, and now all of a sudden they can. It's quite moving, and it's certainly it's about human flourishing in the in the yeah. richest, fullest sense of the word, the opportunity to overcome those kind of things. So, on the one hand, we have that story. The other hand, we've got some some serious challenges, whether they're uh, the move towards populism, the uh the seeming fragmentation of 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 daily life, the rise in in uh, mass killings it seems to be uh too often in the headlines. Uh yes, fewer people are dying in wars, but that's just because, as Talib has pointed out, that's probably just a misunderstanding of the statistical process. So
1: yes.
0: I, I think both sides have something to say. Uh yes. where do you stand on these issues?
1: I'm going to go, I'm going to step way out on the limb. The, the extreme pinker view, not always is view, but sometimes is, uh, is the standard progressive view. Things are just been getting better and better and better, for this, especially over the last 200 years. And the extreme um, gray view, which is also the Deneen view, which is that humanity took this disastrous wrong turn and things have never been worse. Uh, I go out on the limb and say, some things have gotten better <laughs> and some things have worsened. And there is not only no logical contradiction there, some things are better in our situation, some things are worse or um, some things are very troubled. It seems to me that this is the um, very frequent condition of, uh, of humanity are there excesses of the enlightenment? It would be strange if there were no excesses of the enlightenment because the general tendency of intellectual movements and political movements is to excess. So uh, so of, cu- of course there are and by the way, we need to be I think we should be grateful to Gray, to Patrick Deneen, Yoram Chazoni for focusing on some of those excesses. Gray, the ex- the pretensions of enlightenment reason to have illuminated moral and political life in the ways that has uh, never before illuminated. Um, Deneen, the excessive attacks um, often made in liberalism's name against tradition. Uh, Hazoni, the excessive attacks against nationalism and the nation-state made in liberalism's name. My, my goodness, Locke is a defender, though, of the nation-state. He believes that the best vehicle for defending rights is a would be a, a state to which people have consented since you can't really imagine, imagine a viable consent to a universal state. He's a kind of friend of nationalism too. So um, I not only accept, uh, I affirm that uh, the enlightenment and the liberal tradition has in many ways gone too far. It's been carried too far by um, uh many intellectuals arguing and engaged in activism in its name. Uh, all true. So we need to step back. And one way of stepping back, is to, it seems to me, is to ask ourselves, well, what would alternative traditions teach us about the excesses to which uh, liberalism, the enlightenment, the, to which they are prone? And so I think about Plato and Aristotle in this question. Plato and Aristotle both um, put forward devastating criticisms of democracy. I should mention the kind of small-scale democracy that uh, Patrick Deneen very much admires. But those, uh, despite the fact that they didn't know of liberal democracy, that is a kind of democracy that presupposes that all are by nature free and equal, both Plato and Aristotle understood that the premise of democracy was freedom and that it seeks equality for all its citizens, seeks to uh, honor equality for all of its citizens. They thought that this form of political life was subject to all manner of immorality and viciousness. And that it was fated to uh, devolve into tyranny. Sound familiar? But here's something I think quite interesting. Um, Neither of them, for that reason, repudiated democracy. Um, Both, now we we abbreviate and distill because time is short. Both more or less recommended that... uh, uh, that you're not likely to do much better than democracy, or in Aristotle's case, a democracy that is modified by a certain admixture of oligarchy, rule of the few, which in practice means rule by the wealthy. So what Aristotle advocated something he called polity, which is a mix of uh, rule by the wealthy and rule by the people. That also could sound familiar, could uh, resemble certain liberal democracies that we know something about. They were, again, they were acutely aware of the moral limitations of uh, of democracy. They were acutely aware that democracy tends to take its principles to an extreme, uh, to neglect uh, other important political considerations and thereby destroy itself. But they were also uh, shrewd and prudent men, uh, and they understood that um, efforts to well, I, I suppose what, what engage in revolution by changing lib- one form of regime, liberal democracy, for a def- very different one, uh, were bound to lead to uh, even worse uh, catastrophe, even worse uh, worse destruction. So when I study Plato and Aristotle, it's true I encounter alternatives to liberal democracy. I, under- I encounter accounts of human excellence um, that enrich my understanding of uh, of human possibilities, the capabilities of the soul, also the temptations to which the soul is prone. But but I also find uh, a kind of admonition uh, to neither dwell exclusively on the advantages of enlightenment and liberal democracy, to neither dwell on those, nor to dwell on the disadvantages, but try to see the thing whole, um, and uh, devise uh, uh, prudent policies for preserving what's best in liberal democracy while mitigating, reducing, limiting its uh, excesses and unwise tendencies.
0: It's extremely well said, and normally I would have ended right there uh, <laughs> because I like to let the guest have the last word. The guest will still get the last word, but I'm going to try to <laughs> summarize what you just said, uh, the impact on, on my thinking, and and just – think a little bit about the sociology of belief or the psychology of belief. Um, I, I think you're exactly right. Uh, and, and I think what you said is incredibly deep. O- on the surface, it seems rather banal, um, right? It's, oh, well, there's pluses <laughs> and yes. minuses. And you said, yes. you, you you phrased it in a way that, where well, you recognize that there's a, that you're not saying anything particularly dramatic. And yet yes. I think there is something quite dramatic about it in that I think having an what I would call a, a humble view of yeah. of the Enlightenment or the, the the liberal project writ large or a nuanced view is um it doesn't sell very well. No. It's better if you want to sell a book, yes. it's better to say a book that says uh, I think Stephen Pinker called his book Enlightenment <laughs> Now, uh, but <laughs> but he, he could have just called it Enlightenment exclamation point. <laughs> yes. Or as a book that says Enlightenment eh it's a mixed bag, uh, pluses and minuses is not going to be a great seller. And I'm not, I'm picking, I'm joking about Stephen Pinker. Yes. I'm not picking on him personally, but well, I kind of am, but I don't mean to. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I, I don't mean to judge him. Yes. Uh, because I understand the urge to to do this. I don't want to make a cheap shot to say that. Oh, he obviously uh, left out the bad parts because he wanted to sell books. But I, because I, I assume he believes what he believes with a full heart. He's not cynical. Um, but I do think we as human beings, we do like just-so stories, and we do like narratives that fit together cleanly, and we do like ideologies that are, quote, always right. And the longer I host this program, the more I realize that as tempting as those perspectives are, they're really quite incomplete. They, they're very soothing. They yes. bring comfort and um, clarity, but they are not uh, correct. In in the literal sense, so um, that just I wanted to say that because these are issues that I've been struggling with, you know, for a long time, and I continue to struggle with them. And I I think your perspective, which I would summarize as my, one of my favorite phrases, "It's complicated," uh, <laughs> is is probably that what a thinking uh, person who is humble about what we know and don't know should uh, should think of it that way.
1: Well, uh, well, th- thank you, and uh, and I agree with you, your formulations. And I, I suppose at this point, um, it it is worth adding the following: um, one feature that it seems to me does distinguish uh, liberal democracy and classical liberalism from uh, other forms of government. And by the way, all forms of government. All, all political principles tend to be taken by their proponents to an extreme. But what distinguishes l- the classical liberal tradition, liberal democracy in America, is one, that it provides a framework within which um, uh, a variety of views and voices can be, can be heard, not just dissenting opinions, but um, better opinions than the ones that uh, reign. Uh, and second... Not just tolerates the expression of opinion, but can create a framework in which, um, in which one can be persuaded by, by the better view, the more complete view, uh, the truer view. And that gives liberal democracy, I believe, more than uh, any of its competitors, uh, self-correcting powers. In other words, it's difficult to imagine the kind of critiques that John Gray has penned that Patrick Deneen has penned, that Jerome Khazoni has penned of liberal democracy in non-liberal democracies. <laughs> Despite the fact that um, uh, historical experience tells us that non-liberal democracies also have their disadvantages. But we in liberal democracies uh, can not only read the, their books, we can listen to them, to, to their opinions expressed on widely distributed Podcasts, mm-hmm. and we can make a judgment. And by the way, if we th- if we think that uh, John Gray or Patrick Deneen or Ram uh, suppose we think that one is is profoundly correct, we can actually create communities. This is what Patrick Deneen recommends within our liberal democracies that are, to a significant extent, sheltered from um, from the mainstream culture, the depredations of uh, of of daily political life, which, um, which, by the way, come to think of it was part of the original design of the American constitutional system to give dissenting voices, those who espoused uh, more biblical conceptions of good life, freedom from uh, an overbearing government to, uh, to live in accordance with what they believed to be God's will, and our, our system, to a significant extent, still provides that.
0: I guess today has been Peter Berkowitz. Peter, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette,